Torremolinos, Spain, August 26, 1979. In a tourist town on the white sun Spanish coast, an old man was passing his last years, an American grandfather with a snowy white crew cut and a glint in his turquoise eyes. At seventy he was still lean and alert, with high slanting cheekbones, a sharp chin, and those clear frame eyeglasses that made him look like a minor league academic. He spent much of his time holed up in his cluttered garage apartment, watching the BBC on a flickering black-and-white television, surrounded by bottles of Jack Daniels and pills and his memories. If you met him down on the beach, he came across as a gentle soul with a soft laugh. Almost certainly he was the most pleasant murderer you'd ever want to meet. Out in the cafes after a few beers when the sun began to sink down the coast, he would tell stories. The Brits and the odd American, they thought he was nuts, an old lush mumbling in his beer. When he said he'd been a gangster, they smiled. Sure you were, Pops. When he said he'd been public enemy number one, right after John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and his old protege Babyface Nelson, people turned away and rolled their eyes. When he said he and his Confederates had single-handedly created J. Edgar Hoover and the modern FBI, well, then he would get bitter, and people would get up and move to another table. Few in Torremolinos knew it was all true. In those last years at Terminal Island in the 60s, he'd taught Manson to play the steel guitar. He'd been at Alcatraz for 21 damp winters before that. In fact, he had been the longest-serving prisoner in the history of the Rock. He'd known the Birdman and that gas bag machine gun Kelly, and he'd seen Capone collapse into one of his syphilitic seizures, flopping around on the cafeteria floor like a striped bass on a cutting board. In his day, he'd been famous. Not fifteen minutes famous, but famous famous. New York Times, page one, above the fold famous. Back before Neil Armstrong, before the Beatles, before American Bandstand. Before the war, when Hitler was still a worrisome nut in a bad mustache, he was the country's best-known Yegman. Folks today, they didn't even know what a Yeg was. Dillinger, he liked to say, he was the best of Yegs. Pretty Boy Floyd was a good Yeg. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to be. And today? Today he and all his peers were cartoon characters, caricatures in one bad gangster movie after another. The truth of it all seemed lost now. He had known them all. He was the last one left alive. He had even outlived Hoover himself. Hoover. Fucking Hoover. He leaned over and reached for a bottle of his pills. Washington, D.C., Saturday, March 4, 1933. It was a morning as bleak as the times. Gray clouds sagged low over the city nudged along by a north wind and gusts of rain. A hundred thousand people stood outside the Capitol, waiting. The mood in the crowd was hushed, anxious. A few pointed to the rooftops. What are those things that look like little cages? someone asked. Machine guns, said a woman. The atmosphere, wrote Arthur Crock in the New York Times, was comparable to that which might be found in a beleaguered Capitol in wartime. It did feel like war. People were shell-shocked. The country they had known, the fat and happy America of the Jazz Age, of speakeasies and fun and slow-gin fizzes, had vanished, destroyed as utterly as if wiped out by an enemy's bombs. 
Women who once spent their evenings dancing to Charleston now shuffled forward in breadlines, grimy and hopeless. Fathers who sank their savings in the stock market now sat in gutters, begging for change. A bugle called. Everywhere heads turned. The president-elect, appearing unsteady, stepped up the maroon-carpeted ramp to the lectern. The chief justice, Charles Evan Hughes, read the oath of office. When he was finished, Franklin Delano Roosevelt stepped to the lectern and gripped it tightly. His face was grim. In his inaugural address, he said, I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency, as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. What no one could know that morning was that one theater of the metaphoric war Roosevelt invoked would in fact involve guns and blood and death on American soil. It would be fought across a great swath of the country's midsection, beginning at a railroad station in Kansas City, before engulfing the streets of Chicago, pine-shrouded lodges in northern Wisconsin, dust bowl farms in weary Oklahoma, and battle sites scattered from Atlantic City to Dallas, St. Paul to Florida. It would be fought not by soldiers, but by another branch of the federal government, an obscure arm of the Justice Department, headed by an equally obscure bureaucrat named John Edgar Hoover, who in a span of twenty short months would rise from nowhere to hunt down a series of criminals whose exploits were to become a national soap opera, and then a legend. As Roosevelt delivered his inaugural address that drizzly March morning, a group of government bureaucrats in dark suits listened around a radio in a third-floor office at the corner of Vermont and K Streets in downtown Washington. What they did was little known to anyone outside their families. Their supervisor was a squat, beady-eyed man, 38 years old, with a flattened nose and loose bags under his eyes. His resemblance to a bulldog was much remarked upon. That morning, J. Edgar Hoover was preoccupied with keeping his job. Hoover was director of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, not the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It wouldn't get that name for another two years. He had been in office nine years, since 1924, but he had enemies, lots of them, and Roosevelt's men made it clear that he would probably be replaced. It was galling to Hoover that mere politicians held his fate. If not for him, the Bureau of Investigation might have been eliminated years before. It was an odd little outfit. A bureaucratic bastard, one critic called it, responsible for investigating a grab bag of federal offenses, including sedition, interstate auto theft, breakouts from federal prisons, and crime on Indian reservations. Hoover's agents did not possess arrest powers. If they wanted to mount a raid, they were obliged to bring along local policemen. Nor did they carry guns. This was a policy, not a law. Hoover's model was Scotland Yard. His men were investigators, not policemen. Fact-finders was the word his aides used. The Bureau had a sordid history. Created in 1908 to investigate antitrust cases, it had developed over the ensuing 15 years into a nest of nepotism and corruption. In the wake of a mid-1920s congressional investigation, the Bureau acquired the nickname the Department of Easy Virtue. The day he was promoted to clean up the Bureau in 1924, Hoover was a stoic 29-year-old government attorney who still lived with his adoring mother in the house where he was raised. He was a boyhood stutterer who overcame his disability by teaching himself to speak rapidly, 
in staccato bursts so fast that more than one stenographer was unable to keep up. In July 1917, he took a job as a clerk at the Justice Department. He received his new job as assistant director of the Bureau of Investigation in August 1921. A Senate probe of the Bureau in 1924 led to the resignation and indictments of the Bureau Chief and the Attorney General. The new Attorney General, Harlan Fisk Stone, summoned Hoover to his office on May 10, 1924, and handed him interim leadership of the Bureau. Hoover's first priority was transforming his force of field agents, which numbered 339, in 1929. His vision was precise. He wanted young, energetic white men between 25 and 35 with law degrees, clean, neat, well-spoken, bright, and from solid families, men like himself. Appearance, loyalty, and hard work were prized above law enforcement experience. The saying within the Bureau was that Hoover liked his men young and grateful. While publicly mandating that all agents have law degrees, Hoover quietly retained some non-lawyers as well, mostly veteran southwestern lawmen. These cowboys knew how to run investigations, and that's what they did. In violation of Bureau regulations, several carried guns. After six months, the Bureau was on its way to becoming the very model of a modern, efficient government organization. The interim was removed from Hoover's title. Hoover's role was strictly administrative. He seldom left Washington. In the spring of 1933, while billing himself as the nation's leading law enforcement expert, Hoover himself had never made an arrest, much less fired a gun in anger. A 1933 article in Collier's characterized the Bureau as Hoover's personal and political machine. It first hinted at Hoover.